0: Well, good afternoon. Um, It's a great pleasure to be speaking here um, as the last um, of the (laughs) historians at least. Um, And you can put whatever complexion on that you want. now it might seem a little odd especially given what Stephen mosley was saying earlier that i'm a rapid change in my title because i want to talk about energy systems and usually there's a expectation in energy systems that they're inherently slow to change i mean obviously they require a lot of fixed capital investment and development of infrastructure and you need major changes both on the demand and the supply side for an overall change in the energy regime to occur. Obviously, you can't generate electricity without consumers, and nor can you plug something in without the generational capacity. So the expectation is often that we're really locked into energy systems and rapid change is not something that we find. What I want to do in the next few minutes is firstly give you a fairly rapid, in fact, account of changes in the British energy system over the past few decades. And then I want to make some observations about the nature of those changes, not really in any detail, but more for propositions for discussion for you. And I want to finish by looking Again, briefly, at a couple of more particular cases of change in response to shock, one might say, or how it's achieved. I'm going to be revisiting, in fact, the Clean Air Act of 1956. And I want to look at the response to the oil crisis of the 1970s. So, firstly, what actually happened? This is looking at average annual rate of change in British energy consumption, going back a long way, all the way back, in fact, to the reign of Elizabeth. Again, um, now it should be said that this is looking at energy consumed within the UK, fuel that's actually combusted here. Okay. So, if one put in the, f- if you saw it from the consumer side, one has to remember that Britain imports goods that are made with stuff burned elsewhere. But also it exported things from much of its history that were consumed by people overseas. And that certainly would change the picture a bit. But what you can see is is moderate to to high growth over a very long period of English history. And in fact, the standout period, a little bit the interwar period, in fact, but most of all, post-1973. We're now actually in a situation that's almost unique in the last 500 years, where actually internal energy consumption is no longer increasing. And it hasn't been for a few decades in this country. Perhaps the more striking change then, the more rapid change, is actually in the energy mix, where this energy is coming from, primary energy consumption, which is shown by this. Um, if you can't exactly see the, um, the legend here, basically, what I think is orange. I'm colorblind, unfortunately, but this is what I see. Um, here is coal, what's called solids, then you have a big outbound for oil. In the middle, um, this is um, nuclear, power, share, and this is gas. And you have a little bit for renewables emerging. Now, actually, on this graph, I've also put on the Predictions of the expected energy mix of the countries. So this is the share of total energy consumption that comes from different sources, as predicted by the Department of Energy and Climate Change up to 2035. One thing that may surprise you is on this scenario, they don't seem to be expecting very much change. Now, that's partly because that's on the basis of just the continuation of existing policy. And one of the facts about policy, actually, is well, we have targets. All of our energy policies actually effectively stop in the early 2020s. There are no substantive energy policies beyond that date that are currently in place. Um, So the model may change if a future government decided to do different things. But here, I think, we can actually see some periods of pretty rapid transition in the energy mix. This is just going back to 1945. And essentially, there are three. One is the initial transition towards oil in the post-war period that looked very dramatic here. Now, actually, the rate of increase in the use of oil has been was fairly standard throughout the entire century of 1870 to 1970. But it started at such a teeny, tiny level, its scale didn't really affect total energy mix until the post-war period when it rose very, very rapidly. Of course, largely associated with the introduction of motor vehicles, but other factors as well, up until the early 70s. And then we have two others. If you look at the block down at the bottom, the gas transitions. Firstly, the transition to the use of natural gas, particularly for domestic cooking and heating during the 1970s. And this was essentially, in many cases, replacing coal gas, which of course had been used earlier, Um, town gas, as it was often called. And then again, the dash for gas in the 1990s, where it suddenly increases its share dramatically again, and that's for electricity generation. So oil is very much, the expanse of oil is very much part of the growth of the miracle years, at least as they're known in Europe, of post-war rapid Economic growth and the introduction of motor transport. In gases' case, I said one of the transitions is associated, in a sense, with a replacement of a familiar technology but being piped from the North Sea. The second one, actually, the dash for gas in terms of electricity, is partly accounted for by new actors coming in with the privatization of the electricity industry in 1989, a lot of the new companies decide to go for gas at that point, which has become a cheaper option. But also an important precondition was the development of the gas turbine in electricity generation that actually was a spin-off of developments in the aerospace industry. Um, finally, electricity is another factor to look at. Um, of course, electricity is being generated by other sources. And here we see, a bit like oil actually, fairly steady growth over a long period of time. From the fact that the beginnings of work on the national grid in, in 1926 until the early 70s, electricity consumption rose by nearly 7% per annum. Actually, since 1973, the rate of growth has been pretty small. Again, it's not going up that much, 1.6%, certainly in comparison to early years. So some observations on this history. One thing I think it's important to say is simply that change is possible in the energy regime. There's actually been quite a lot of it during the 20th century, especially in the energy mix. And if one, in the expectation that changes may not happen that fast, achieving change within a decade might be seen as actually quite rapid within the parameters of such a system. That's happened quite frequently before. I'll come back to that in a second, some observations about the systems or the, the change in the nature of the systems themselves that we might take for discussion at this point. I think we really have two types of transition amid the ones that I've described to you. Firstly, the transition to oil and electricity. Now, this was clearly associated with many actors, both on the supply and the demand side, delivering the stuff, to market, but also people adapting their home life, their transportation, their workplace practices to take advantage of these new fuels and opportunity. So these were offering new services, in many cases, that people didn't have before, and also they were labor-saving, and particularly that was the way they were marketed within the home. They could rapidly reconfigure the kind of micromanagement of your house within the 50s and 60s. Part of their appeal and how they were marketed was their modernity. And making a modern nation but as you've already seen these transitions the rate of growth was steady over quite long periods of time over decades in fact so they were incremental in their impact now the gas transitions are rather smaller although in some ways people adapted aspects of their domestic heating or cooking space to gas often they were simply making very minor adaptations to equipment that was already installed or updating equipment that was already producing gas that had come from coal. So the gas transitions were managed by very few actors on the supply side, building the national gas pipeline network or the new distribution companies introduced in 1989. The appeal for many people was simply that gas was cheaper than all of the other options. The technology being employed was pretty familiar, but this type of transition was really quite rapid. Big, big change within a space of about 10 years. Now, if we compare these kind of transitions to the decarbonization, or the, the hope for decarbonization of the energy system today, we can see some kind of similarities, but they're kind of distributed over the two types of transition. There isn't a transition that's, I think, very obviously the same. One might say that decarbonization of the electricity system is closest to the what we might see on the case of The gas transitions, except the transition to renewables if it was achieved through things like wind and solar, would have much more dramatic impacts on the landscape and actually potentially on the type of equipment that people had to install in their houses than was the case in gas. You could force this upon people with there being few actors governing the system, but you might encounter a rather different type of resistance. Previously when you've had transitions that involve very many actors and actually a transformatory both of landscape and domestic life, nevertheless the benefits of that and the new services that could be provided were seen as being very widely distributed among the population so everybody could perceive the trade-off that was being made. Now one other aspect of the energy system that you might ask about is what about efficiency? What's simply about using less energy? What's the pattern in that over time? Um, This is the the progress or the decline in UK energy intensity. Now energy intensity is basically the inverse of energy efficiency. So, you want energy intensity to be falling. It's basically the amount of energy required to produce a pound of income, okay, and it's an economic measure. And it may surprise you to see that the efficiency of the energy system has been actually improving for a long time, since the 1880s, pretty steadily without interruption. And in fact, that has been accelerating over time. So the expectations again of, of dec over the next couple of decades aren't that far off the trajectory that we've already been on for a very long period. But you've also seen that the overall changes in the energy system as a whole would suggest that you would have to have really, really dramatic and historically unprecedented increases in energy efficiency to really kind of shift the energy system as a total and not make the changing the energy mix the most significant factor. Now. Onto my couple of final or more precise case studies to consider. First is the Clean Air Act of 1956. Now, happily, this is, in fact, yet another postcard of Manchester, um, ironically showing how lovely it is. Um, Stephen Mosley has happily already provided the context of why there was 100 years of efforts to um, deal with smoke pollution, but of relatively little effect. I want to actually talk about the particularities of the Clean Air Act and its, and its subsequent history itself rather briefly. So, clearly, the stimulus to this was the Great London Smog of 1952 and the shock of deaths being caused. But the, even in that situation, the government was actually reluctant to immediately act. What it did was set up a committee to investigate, and this was an important context of all the work that had been done previously that could go into the committee, called the Beaver Committee, that was headed by. Uh, a renowned engineer who brought out a set of recommendations and then how that was put through Parliament was actually a private members bill put forward by the Conservative MP Gerald Nabarro, who basically took the report of the committee and turned it into a parliamentary bill. But the recommendations were virtually exactly the same. And that then meant that the government was under a huge amount of pressure to do something because this was basically their own committee report being presented towards parliament. Now, they got the bill withdrawn, but they introduced the act that looked very similar. And that was part of the political trickery, in a sense, to get it really to happen and onto the statute book. And there are a couple of other, I think, important aspects of the act to consider. Stephen talked earlier about the level of subsidy available for changing equipment, but also the the way it was introduced in localities. It was not a blanket expectation that the country should act in a particular way. Effectively, it was giving local authorities the power to set up smokeless zones with some particular restrictions on the amount of pollution that could be brought out, but with a kind of seven-year period by which you had to introduce those changes. And importantly, actually the possibility for a high level of exemption. So when it was introduced, nobody actually felt that the ax was definitely going to fall on them. Everyone actually had the opportunity to plea and say they should not be treated through the kind of restriction. So it's actually quite open-ended. Now this obviously had the potential for lots of inequities, but it also meant that people who wanted to be excluded had to make a public case of why this should be so. But they weren't necessarily going to be hit by the act, and they had a number of years to do it. Um, And I think this is possibly an interesting model to consider for building kind of wide consent, and acquiescence that was then built up with the implementation at the local level, albeit that that implementation then took two or three decades to have total effect. Finally, as a case, and even more briefly, um, this is a very simple and, in a sense, a crude lesson. This graph shows, basically, along the bottom, the dependency of countries. I'm not going to tell you what the metrics really mean. But along the bottom, it graphs the dependency of countries on oil in the 1970s. How much of your energy system was dependent on oil? With the further away from me you go, the higher that dependency was. And then the y-axis there is showing you how successful were countries in reducing their oil use in the 1980s subsequent to the oil shocks up until 1991, with the more successful you are, the lower down you are. And basically, what this graph shows pretty clearly is the more dependent people were on oil, the more successful they were at shaking that dependence during the 1980s. So the lesson is that people did not actually suffer from taking a big hit on something they couldn't free themselves from. The bigger the hit they took, the stronger was the reaction to do something about it. And the very final time is up. Conclusions, which are extremely brief. So I want to say, well, seen on the perspective of energy changes that we expect in an energy regime because so much is involved, we expect it to take some time to happen. But actually, relatively rapid change on the decadal scale is possible in energy. In fact, it's frequently found, and pretty well all early predict- earlier predictions about the future of energy underestimated the capacity of the system to change. Virtually all predictions were wrong, level of energy consumption actually rose less than people anticipated, and the capacity of change in the system was larger. So I think energy should not be thought of as a story of some kind of pathology or addiction that we cannot shake. There is change. They have been frequent in the past. And whilst I don't want to underestimate the degree to which in the long run energy consumption has increased and the problems we face, there is no business as usual in the long term in the energy sector. Thank you very much.